This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority, the designated investment business, and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. Hi, I'm Nick Searle, a member of the Zeus Equity Sales Team and host of A Different Perspective. Here we interview interesting characters from the world of business and finance and uncover a different perspective. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or contact me at live at zeuscapital.co.uk. It's Thursday, 8th of September, and I'm delighted to introduce today's guest, the original macro terrorist and now the very successful podcaster and market commentator, the acid capitalist Hugh Henry. Hugh started his distinguished career at Bailey Gifford, moved to work with Chris Minodi, and then started his own hedge fund. Hugh now splits his time between St. Bart's, the US, and London. Hugh, welcome. Thank you for a very kind introduction. Fantastic here in London. Just a shame we didn't bring any Caribbean weather with you, really. Like, if, if everyone's such a whinger in London. Uh, you're about the fifth person to say it. I'm like, it's, it's warm and we're getting kind of tropical rain. I mean, the rainstorm yesterday was Certainly splendid. Biblical, rather biblical than, rather than well, tropical. I tell you, in the Caribbean, it's biblical. This is the biblical season. This is the... the, uh, the, the what do you call it? The I I have this thing where I, I kind of move between my French modest brain and my very very modest English brain. The cyclonic season, the hurricane season, um, and heavens, you get humidity and you get rainstorms. I can imagine. Before we get so we get onto markets, I'd like to start with a bit of background. I mean, maybe you can walk us through you know, your journey. Well, um, I think my journey is best summed up by a combination of. Um, application and serendipity um i do not come from a if you will a typical uh, city uh, background uh, which is to say my my father was a truck driver mm-hmm. uh, is to say i found myself um the first seven or eight years living in what the our american cousins would call a project you know a kind of out of town um housing um, estate which was t- desperately poorly conceived was violent and and um, for some reason my family were picked upon I think because they were they were do-gooders mm-hmm. um, but at such a tender age it, it leaves its footprint on you um, we all have uh, degrees of um, attachment or detachment and I think that's marked my personality and it allowed me created a detachment whereby I became detached from the closest ones around me and and I powered myself into education like 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 wanting to get away and, and eventually I, I I did you know I was the first kid to to go to uni- first kid within the confines the modest um, <laughs> gene pool of my family uh, to go to university, um, serendipity in that I 
heaven's sake, the, the sec- the, these are meant to be secrets to take to your grave, but I studied accountancy. Accountancy, I had a joint. Yeah. Honours degree, accountancy and economics. Have is their idea of, of grasping to the term economics for salvation. So economics is a dirtier term even than accountancy, but look at me, I'm hardly an accountant. Um, but I was actually signed up back in the day when you had Arthur Anderson as one of the major thrusting uh, accountancy practices. And and funny, you know, back then uh, at campus and, and what have you, that was the go-to if you're an accountant. <laughs> that was the sexy kind of LA law kind of uh, thing. Um, um, anyway, I, I was given a sponsorship um, to, to join up to my honours year. And, and, then, and then I discovered market-based accounting research, mm-hmm. which was an adjunct to uh, my studies in the, the final year. And we were sitting with a data stream terminal. Now, to the young folk, no one will have any idea what oh, that no. is. Data stream I know very well. 401F was my favourite function. Okay. What, what, print? <laughs> no, relative, relative charts. Relative well, charts. A man after my own heart. I lo- the, the intel you get from, uh, from relative charts, having uh, some of the, 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 the greatest successes I enjoyed running the hedge fund, came, the source came both from serendipity, imagination, and relative uh, price performance across asset classes. Yep. But the market-based accounting research, or data stream, data stream was a... Uh, a, predece- a very, very basic predecessor to Bloomberg. It was a graphic function for looking at stock price charts. And I was um, given the task of trying to determine whether markets were intelligent. I mean, we all know they're not, but um, noise, signal, um, can the market separate the two? And so via the, the lens of accountancy, um, there may be a change in accounting policy that would not impact on cash flow. That would be noise if it increases or reduces profits it shouldn't matter um would the market would the market see through the optics and so for me i did just voyeurism you know um watching things it was like a tempest um it was like being at the bottom of the ocean you know the story about how do you meet a a mermaid you go down when you're holding your breath 100 meters into the deep deep darkness and and you're asked to just sit around and around. And, and if effectively, you've got to commit all of the the oxygen you have to take you back. And only then, when you've reached across the threshold, a hand reaches out. And the hand would reach out on my data stream terminal. And the market actually could cut between the noise and the signal. And, and that grasped me. And so, um, again, with serendipity, I ended up making an application to the, in, in, the investment houses of Edinburgh. And, and I... You know, back then they were looking for gene diversity, mm-hmm. and so I, I was perfect. Um, I'd like to think my intelligence, my enthusiasm, um, coupled with their gene diversity <laughs> determination, made it made it happen. Um, I was there for eight years, and then again serendipity, I met the larger than life Chris Bonodi, and he recognised me the spirit of being a pirate, being an adventurer. And he asked me to join his ship. And this is a long time ago. This is, I didn't even know what a hedge fund was. So how many people would be working with Crispin then? Ooh, like no more than six, you know. I, I mean, maybe five, four or five, um, tiny. So Crispin had started his career in 1991 
officially as a hedge fund. It obviously goes goes back further than that. Um, enjoyed rampant success, but brief success because 1994 intervened. And it's possibly, it's certainly the only time I can think of the Fed being ahead of markets and therefore surprising markets with a preemptive rate hike. And that coincided with Crispin. Crispin was working wonderful. Um, he was working macro narrative and overly into equity portfolios. So he could recognize that he was owning Nokia and Ericsson. And they were like mm-hmm. shooting stars, you know, um, or fireworks. They were, they were going up, not down. <laughs> um, and, and, he, and so he's very good at asking questions. Why? Why is the sky blue? That's kind of actually the, the role of a, of a hedge fund manager. Why is the sky blue? And, and he came to recognize um, this was not that much later since the, the Berlin Wall had come down. We had globalization and we had another thrust for def- disinflationary power. And he recognized that Ericsson was essentially, um, he was buying a duration, a long duration asset. Uh, which was very leveraged to the likelihood that long-term rates would continue to um, uh, descend. But probably not on 40 times, like our current long-duration assets. Um, well, but back then, overnight, Bank of England of Fed rates would have been in excess of five. Yeah. So um, tell me the risk-free rate, and then I'll tell you the price-earnings ratio. Um, but, um, and so he pivoted. He said, well, what the liqu- I, could cre- I could create the same exposure in the fixed income market uh, with more liquidity. Uh, and I could take a bigger position with the notion of liquidity, but kind of the message kind of got crossed and he found himself in the UK, um, the, the what happens, what do you call it, the war console going back to, what mm-hmm. did they be? I don't even know, if it, I think they may have taken it out of um, circulation now. But an undated console, which is just the greatest uh, rate exposure you can buy. And of course, Greenspan, surprised the market and Crispin was in a hole yep. and more than that he'd purchased 13% of the government bond issue I mean no one does that Crispin is large and alive and he doesn't and when he asked for the the, the, the first quote um, he did not like it it was not to his <laughs> pleasing and I believe his response was littered with profanities uh, and his problem was everyone knew he was yeah. the whale yeah. and, and he should have taken it um, and he didn't, and so he he lost forty four percent that year, and he was, yeah, everyone kicked him out, um, and so that's why there was four or five people when I joined, mm-hmm. and he spent the best part of six years rehabilitating his reputation, which was set to be restored a bit like with, I mean not not I was going to mention the name Jonathan Ruffer, not that Jonathan's reputation would need restored, but you know clearly. Jonathan, if we go back to that period in time, the wise investors had been skeptical of the market's advances via NASDAQ for several years and therefore were under reputational pressure. And as Jonathan always says, um, clients love making money. They hate losing money more. Or or not making money. And then, you know, Jonathan wasn't losing money. He wasn't making money. And people were like, you know, my neighbor's making money. Why are you not making money? So, yeah. Um, and... And, and certainly, I'm a, I've been aware of that that pressure. So anyway, um, and Crispin taught me wonderful things: curiosity, playfulness, to be a troublemaker. You know, to to touch hot plates and cold plates and recognize the difference. Um, 
and it was like a finishing school for the wonderful education I had received in Edinburgh. And then eventually, if you can do it yourself, you have no you have no choice. It is a calling. And so, with regret, I had to say to Crispin, "I'm I'm too much like you." So, how long did you spend with Crispin? I think it was um, heavens uh, between four and five years. Two thousand March two April two thousand uh, to February two thousand and five, um, and within the auspice, I was a partner with Crispin. And I had launched the Eclectica Macro Fund in 2002. And then we structured a deal where I purchased the management contract. I could have walked yeah. away yeah. and said, you know, screw you, and then raised funds. But for me, I, again, a constant person, who am I? Like, why is the sky blue? Who am I? And, and, and made an error in the sense of tying up my identity with the compound annual growth rate mm-hmm. of my returns mm-hmm. and so there's always there's a post-dated it's not a check but it's a it's a letter telling you your five-year compound annual growth rate your 10-year your 15-year um and and to anyone listening anyone younger i mean caution uh, i would advise don't spend too much of your present time in the future like try yep. and be more present yeah that's a great lesson for all of us really isn't it especially in this endeavor where yep. you're your the gravitational force is forward in time, mm-hmm. um, and you have to separate that professional activity from the more important personal aspects. So, so did you take your team with you? How did how did yeah. how did it all start? Um, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit kind of grumpy and edgy. You know, Crispin saw it as a as a profound betrayal. Um, but again, remember, I, I purchased the management contract and you know I wanted to show good grace mm-hmm. um, and I think I did but um, I, it was a little bit complicated in that I had it was the descent from heaven I had to resign my partnership uh, from the OD hedge fund and and then I had to work under his regulatory license as I applied for my yeah. regulatory license. Yeah. And so I eventually, I, I worked from home in Notting Hill, which was fine because I, I very rarely worked in offices. I, I listened to music and I kind of fidget and I'm a distraction. Yeah, And I'd, I'd, I'd have, you know, um, I, I would share the, the fag break with my soon-to-be new colleagues outside the office at Crispin. I mean, I don't smoke, but, you know, they would be smoking, whatever. Um, and... And we survived like that for um, six months, uh, and we—I'm glad to say—we we got our license in, in almost record-breaking time, and and therefore from 2005, the same name, um, the same fund, um, and and the team, and then we went off on on new and new endeavors um, of you know making a complete horlicks of things, living to tell the tale, and occasionally getting things like like really really uh, correct. And then your biggest calls of, of that period, I mean, sort of 2005 to 2009, 10, I guess? Well, the, the, my hedge fund career would be defined, my career would be defined certainly with under Crispin's tutelage, um, but navigating the NASDAQ crush, again, without a hedge fund, so just long only. Um, so th- two, 2000 or? Yeah, t- um, 2000, 2002. The German stock market was down the best part of 80%. Um, we were up three. 
Um, and it was from that that impetus that I, I kind of really demanded that I had to. I, I, I was fed up doing it with one arm tied mm-hmm. behind my back. Um, the hedge fund began in October 2002, which is an odd starting date. So the first calendar year was 2003. And I was ref- ruminating on the notion that, um, uh, you know, there's this new business uh, being sponsored by Travis, Mr. Uber, I can't recall his yeah. surname. And funny, I'm just back from LA and I've got, um, I've got friends in the, in the restaurant and hotel trade over there. And they were talking about this new thing, the, the ghost kitchen. Yep. Um, so having a, a multiple kitchen uh, property. And at first blush, you think, what? Um, but it works on the basis that, you know, like in driving, everyone thinks they're a good driver. They're better than average. Um, and when it comes to cooking, it's a little bit like that. So restaurants fail. But the one thing we know is, there's an abundance of failure, especially in the first year. It's a risky endeavor. Um, and hedge funds are like that. It's not commonly reflected upon. Um, the majority of new hedge fund starts um, fail within 12 to 18 months. And a lot of the return you're seeing is a survivorship bias and it's not representative. Is that a function of not raising enough critical assets? Is that I think today is more that. But, you know, back in my day, you know, having $50 million was was yeah. a decent sum of money. But the regulation imposed after 2008 made that, made that impossible. Um, it's, I, I think it's more attributable to the fact that it's damn difficult. It's, it's preposterous. You're, you're, you know, the, the, the mission is uh, to predict the future. Yeah. Who can do yeah. that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think that reason... Um, but so the, the, the ghost kitchen works on the basis that uh, whilst there's the surety that the restaurants will fail, there's also the absolute uh, certainty that some other idiot will stand up and say, I can do it. Yeah. And so it's all, you're, you're feeling grave, graves all the time. Um, and I have no idea why I'm talking about graves and restaurants, but, you know, hedge funds and, oh, yes, I was, forgive me. So uh, my flow was my first year, 2003, yeah. and... That was an adventure. The headline is, I made 50%, mm-hmm. which underwrote me for a considerable amount of time with goodwill. Um, the source of those profits was the um, the gold market. Uh, gold entered a bull market for the first time since its peak in January of um, 1980. It peaked with the fiasco of the... Uh, U.S. intervention with helicopters to rescue the hostages in in Tehran. Um, so 1980 to 2002, 22, 22, 23 years, where the S&P I think went up at least fivefold, if not eightfold, and gold fell from 800 bucks to 300 bucks. Yeah. And I went to Milan on a night out. I went to see AC Milan versus Inter Milan. Why? Because it sounded kind of fun. Um, I, I'm again. I told you I'm voyeuristic. I, I I like watching everything seen and stuff. I sat in the gods. That um, was splendid. Um, I had an evening in Milan's VIP disco rooms. Um, I woke up the following morning, and I just knew I had to buy gold. I'd been watching in my mind the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, I got back to London, and my wife thought I was on mushrooms. Um, my office was just like, "Oh my god," you know, and um, it coincided. And I, when I decide to do something, I, I 
I'm a bit like Chris, but I, I kind of go, I wade in. You know, if you're going to do it, do it in a cavalier manner. Do it in a manner that will make a difference. And um, But my adversary was Gordon Brown, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yep. And my adversary had 500 PhDs. I don't know how many PhDs work at the Bank of England. I imagine lots. And, and, and they're a peer group in all the investment banks. They're all the same, all the same grey. I mean, I don't wish to dismiss PhDs. Um, and it was something we may touch upon on a recurring basis. It was the conceit and the arrogance of a well-formed argument. Yeah. After 22 years... They're like, get rid of the damn thing. We don't need this, you know. So something that had been preserved in the vaults um, through famine, through wars, Napoleonic revolutions, you name it. And they're like, no, get rid of it. You know, we're, the, and, and another term from, uh, that I use is the conceit of modernity. We, this is a, an ancient relic. Um, I, like I say, so they had 500 PhDs. I had drank too much vodka Red Bull in Milan. And I had watched The Wizard of Oz. I hadn't even watched it. I'd kind of replayed elements of it in my head. Who would be right? Yep. It turned out that I was right. But not without taking the mother of all drawdowns within that year. You know, So I, could, I can famously recall a lunch in Monaco with a, a billionaire. He just sold a pharmaceutical business. And back then, I... I I traveled like a drug trader. You know, I had like messenger, like what you call it, pagers, three telephones. You know, from the housing estate, I, I used to think of my uh, my former friends who probably had to, uh, going to visit their friends in prison, would have to go through security and they'd have to put down all of their gadgets. And I'm just like, I'm just like one of the kids. Yep. Five phones. Um, and I remember coming out and turning my phone on and that I had a hundred, literally a hundred. If it's not a hundred, it's 89. Um, missed calls from the trading desk. Frantic, frantic, frantic. Gold was, I don't know, gold was being gold. Gold was down 3 to 5%. Um, and we were having like a couple million dollar uh, down day. And you, we, we kind of talked about it in, in, in dollar down days and dollar up days. Um, what do we do? Um, I took a helicopter back from Monaco. I never travel, never travel helicopters, but I'm like dead man walking. Yeah. May as well sample the yeah, delights, exactly. you know. And um, I sold the entire position on my return to London. And I was supposed to take a break, but then I got fascinated by this uh, producer of sausage condoms in Glasgow. Sausage condoms are the um, the collagen casings. Yes. Uh, which replace the gut casings that you still see to this day yeah. in delicatessen. Wonderful business, but uh, this was at the time of... I think there was one listed, Devro, I think. That's the one, yeah. yeah. Um, but at the time of foot and mouth, the, the, the plague, plagues are interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, and super business, like 85% global market share, high margins, very conservative clients, very uh, not wishing. The inertia, because the last thing, this thing is costs nothing, but if it was contaminated, it destroys yeah. your reputation. Everything you want in a business, but plagues get in the way, and it had a ninety percent reversal. And so I was buying lots of uh, sausage condoms uh, for a week or two, um, and then I, I came back into the office and I said, "Right, buy all the gold back." And my traders were just muttering, "He truly is a raw. He's out of control." But that was it, and, and we, we 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 took that, and, and that's why we got fifty percent. 
Very interesting. And then I think you know, if we can look at move forward to modern modern time, as it were, and the, the macro is is your thing and what you're renowned for. So I wonder if we could sort of just run through some some market topics, if you'd be happy with that. Yeah, of course. I mean, let's, shall, shall we start with gold? I mean, uh, the largest sort of inflation hedge you know, and yet doesn't doesn't seem really moved. Yeah, um, it is an inflation hedge. There, there, there's no like a, clearly a new inflation hedge, uh, Mister BTC, Mister Bitcoin. Yeah, um, conceived to replicate many of the characteristics of gold, um, and then with the added advantage of being of being portable. Um, and, and 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 I'm I'm sure people would say, well, why stop at portability? There's X, Y, Z other reasons, but you know. Um, and I think part of the travails of gold was that drag on on the people who would be buying gold ended up buying Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, gold is about a nine trillion dollar market, and. Essentially, uh, my rule of thumb is, f- at fifty bucks, Bitcoin is a trillion dollars. Um, it's not yeah. vaguely right, you know. Uh, so at a hundred bucks, it'd be two trillion dollars. But you took a trillion dollars, if you will, away from the gold market. Um, so that was something. That was something. But gold itself, um, we talked about charts in the sense of relative. Yeah. And you know, I haven't actually looked at the relative price chart of gold in a while. I have to say, the impulse, one of the impulses for purchasing it back in 2003 was that relative price chart. You know, um, and again, it was following the demise of the technology bubble and how it brought down the S&P. And, and the fact that gold just didn't do anything, which was disappointing. It, but you, know, you could say it was, why would it do anything in a, in a profound recession? So it, it, there wasn't a great deal of expectation, yeah. Um, but in not in not doing anything, of course, vis-a-vis an asset which has just lost fifty percent from peak to trough, it's done something exceptional. Mm-hmm. And and looking at it on twenty-year charts, there was a change. You know, I was I, I mentioned graveyards. I trapsy through graveyards looking for shallow graves. So what is a graveyard? A graveyard is something which has had an, an 80%, perhaps 90% peak to trough decline. Um, and that creates revulsion. This is a very emotional business. Reputations and expectations, reputations and expectations have been either destroyed or disappointed and, and harmed. And people are bitter about it, and they push it away from themselves. And so there's typically a healing process, which is to be rejected by the mainstream for upwards of a decade, if not longer. And then I would look for some rehabilitation vis-a-vis those price-relative charts. And that's what I was seeing. And there was profound revulsion with regard to gold. Um, And so it took two decades to rehabilitate. Today, I have to say, we were talking about Jonathan Ruffer, and the, and the, the chart sheet is not making money, or mm-hmm. heaven forbid, losing money. But if we just stick to the not making money, um, gold seems kind of fine. You know, you haven't made anything in the last two years. Okay, well, 
look at big deal. But if you look at the long-term construction of it, um, we and again, I'm, I'm a big one for give me breakouts. You know, I try to determine messages from, you know, I never walk past an empty restaurant and go, God, I feel hungry. That, that place looks incredible. But I pass a busy restaurant and I beg to be given a table, you know. And so I think there's a wisdom from the uh, from from other people's decisions. But then we haven't had inflation as we have for the last two years. So you know, there hasn't been what I would have expected to be any sort of uplift. You haven't had inflation for 40 years. Well, that's what I mean. So, so and you've had a bull market in gold. So again, it, we're going to get on to this fact. Markets are damn crazy. There's very little wisdom in markets. And you, my, one of my favorite modern cabaret sayings, um, and it's not an exaggeration, is I think there are no more than five people in the world, the world of markets, that actually truly understand money. Five. five. I'm, ge- I'm guessing that's not the central, US central bank. That would not include central banks. It, it would not include hedge funds. Mm-hmm. It would not include investment banks. Um, it tends to be kind of roguish, eccentric people because everyone else is plugged into some form of metrics, you know, an imagined reality. There are lots of imagined realities, and they can be very rewarding from a remuneration and a reputational standpoint. Um some desperate fools like, and I'm not saying I'm one of the five. Um, I'm just part of the team that shuttles between their world and our world. Um, and yeah, be careful of the color of the pill that you swallow. So gold and inflation. Um, do we need inflation for gold, for gold to go up? So let me touch upon that because in so we talked about successes and believe me i had many failures um gold was a success and then 2008 was a great success where i made 50 percent five zero in the month of october 2008 so arguably the worst month in 100 years of mm-hmm. stock trading and i made 50 so whatever the conception of that idea had, had come to me in late 2005 and via one of the major Wall Street banks recommending gold and the notion that it would trade at 3,000 bucks. And these are, again, were the people that would, these were the PhDs that had been advocating this, the sell or the sale in, back in 2003. And, and so I said, wow, what's going on here? And so I, as I played with it, I was like, you know what? The, and gold would have been heavens six seven hundred bucks really ballsy really ballsy uh, call the only way i could conceive of gold getting to those levels you know i live kind of biblically you know the uh, i don't think it's actually a true saying from the bible but it's it's so nice that it gets repeated that it uh, the passage of a rich man to heaven is like the is like the passage of a camel through the eye of a needle which seems kind of kind of quite socialist or (laughs) contemptuous of wealth but who knows um and, and investing is a little bit, it's like, can you thread a camel through the eye of a needle? That's what I was constantly attempting to do. So my uh, version of that is that for gold to reach those levels, you would have to see a profound deflationary shock, which would radicalize the conservatism that we see, which is commonplace in central banking, that they would need the legitimacy of such a severe economic backdrop 
um, to take interest rates to zero. Mm-hmm. And back then, in 2005, that was the peak of zealotry, was that we could run at Bank of Japan levels of nothingness. Yeah. We weren't really best. conceiving of yeah. anything else. Yeah. Um, and so I was then, so I then turned it on its head and I said, actually, if you think gold's going to 3,000 has the potency to go to those levels, what you should be doing is you should be buying 10 or, or, or longer, 10-year longer dated duration um, U.S. Treasury bonds because in the catalyst being the economic de- de- depression, deflation event, it will take yields lower. That's the camel passing through the, the eye of the needle. And it was ultimately a fixed income trade which, um, which, which worked out for me in, in 2008. Um, now, thereafter, we had the ad- March 2009, Citigroup was trading at nine bucks. And nine bucks was the same price as had prevailed in 1977. Mm-hmm. And nine bucks was arguably nine bucks too much. It was bankrupt. The US banking system was bankrupt. And so we had, the, the Fed had the choice to go through the early 1930s again, where you, you were binary. It was zero or one. It was bankruptcy, um, or they would bail, and they chose to bail, and I think they were correct to bail. And then we had that two-year period where gold had gone from, I think, a peak of about 900 bucks, fallen to about 550, and then gold went through through the roof with the notion that this revolution, that again, I had suggested there would be a revolution, I didn't know it would take the form of this quantitative easing, uh, would be profoundly inflationary. And, and it, it wasn't. And yet, but so gold had a, and commodities had a bull market and then a huge retracement. Um, and yet that, that thrust, that physical absolute gold price chart is still intact. It's just, it's just going so slowly. Yeah. Um, and so as an allocation, if it's like 10% of your portfolio, like don't even talk about it, don't even think about it is, is my view. And then we mentioned Bitcoin, you mentioned Bitcoin. I mean, do you have a, a thought there? Bitcoin and, and the, the desire, the thrust for Bitcoin is born out of immense social injustice. That back to March 2009, the Fed, I think, was correct in bailing markets. But the Fed doesn't bail. The Fed is the principal underwriter, but it is managed, the, the pension fund that it's managing is, the, is you and I. It, it's, it's the citizenship of the country. And so the the galling aspect of it is, if you will, there's a, an enfranchised group, which are the asset owners. And then the, there's the unfortunate, for whatever reason, be it age or misfortune, uh, they have not secured assets. Uh, the second groups were still asked to underwrite the first group. Mm-hmm. And it's not the first time they've been asked because there have been repeated calls in the last decade. Um, and, and it's like, the righteous brother and the brother that goes away from, again, we're back in the Bible. The, the, the reckless one keeps getting bailed by the father and the, or the less than righteous one, uh, the party one. And the righteous brother's like, well, yeah, I'm damn fed up with this. Damn fed up with this. And but that's where we are just now. We're damn fed up. And so um, I spend a lot of time, I'm a kind of French cafe kind of guy, Paris and whatever. And um, I'm always kind of recognize a little bit um, and, and and the servers come up to me and say, oh, I think, well, you know things about investment. I'm like, no, I don't. No, I don't. <laughs> uh, 
and they show me the 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 the, the telephone, the, the the Apple phone, and the big screen, and they've and they've got Bitcoin. Why? So why do they have Bitcoin? They have Bitcoin because if you've got if you, if you've got very modest means, you need to compound it like a hundred percent per annum. If you've got a thousand bucks, and you're compound compounding at five would be pretty yeah. decent in this yeah. environment. Pretty decent if you're rich. If you're poor, is it doesn't count. So there was a lot of uh, that was the speculative. Um, that was part of the speculative impulse behind Bitcoin. Um, but like in reasoning, it makes sense. You know, the, if gold is nine trillion dollars, um, another alternative that Bitcoin could substitute would be commercial anything which is inflation protected. You know, uh, commercial property, gold, index-linked securities. Mm. I mean, you, you you can get to a figure which is like a hundred trillion dollars, and then you say, well, what if Bitcoin had like one percent of that? So that okay, if it's a hundred trillion, that that'd be one trillion, and therefore it'd be worth fifty bucks there, give or take. Today it's give or take twenty bucks. Um, so I could, con- I could easily conceive of it being fifty, hundred bucks, hundred and fifty bucks. Um, but I again back to that notion of traipsing through graveyards. Uh, people have been hurt. People have been misinformed. There's a there's a revulsion. Losing money is awful, especially when you don't have much capital. And and therefore, I think there would be a degree of neglect. I which is to say that a sin bid sin bin period uh, could see Bitcoin at these. If it's, I, I'm cautious on all risk assets. Bitcoin is a risk asset, and I think Bitcoin. I fear Bitcoin. I don't fear because I don't own it, but Bitcoin could could still trade considerably below these levels, but maybe around ten or so, um, you know, it would be one that I would kind of I would say right, okay, why not? I think it's a I think it's a relevant asset class. Yeah, I think it's a relevant asset class. I also think that uh, blockchain is far more interesting, um, the technology, mm-hmm. um, because. We, I, I still maintain we're in a depression. I want to say that again, a depression. It would, you know, we discovered with COVID that there is language which um, you're not allowed to use in in social media platforms. I mean, it doesn't seem we can even use the word recession at the moment. Well, de- well and, uh, I'm so glad you noticed that. You know, we we've had two quarterly declines in GDP in North America. As long as I've been around, there's a recession, and you had the absurdity. Of the 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 Federal Reserve, and I mean, there's no kickback from or pushback from journalists. They they like, yeah, well, the Federal Reserve. Maybe they got a point because unemployment unemployment is really low, and you don't really get really low unemployment in a recession. So maybe it's not a recession. It is a damn recession. And you know what? That low unemployment. Hang around a little while, and you'll see what happens. Absolutely. And what I found bizarre is that the the markets didn't even re- take into view what what Powell said two weeks ago when he turned around and said. The UK, U.S. consumer and businesses will need to feel the pain, but that is the that is the that is the policy. The the policy, supposedly to to remove the curse of inflation, is that people have to lose jobs, that companies have to earn less, that bad times are necessary or difficult times are necessary to stop people being reckless. I mean, it's a preposterous argument. And, and again, the anger, the resentment that's building. I mean, so depression, recession, no. Depression would take us back to the depths of 2008. A depression would be that 
the trend growth rate in the economy, the trend having been established for the 30 years up until 2000, and let's call it six, seven, right? US economy was compounding at something close to 2.8% real. Um, and likewise, kind of for the world, we've never re regained that economic momentum. And annually, that is a loss of annual income in the trillions of dollars for households. And so that's what's so grave about this thing. And that's why. Um, and and so now, and so that's happening. And then the Fed's like, now we want you to suffer more. We yeah. want to, we've just, you know, in the US, they pushed the 30 year mortgage rate has more than doubled to over 6%. You know, we now want your house. We we now want you to worry about your house price. We want you to lose your job, and if behind all of this, you have this huge mercantilism in the world, which is to say, largely out of um, um, Asia, but in the, the core of Europe with Germany, you have an economic model, um, which is pretty much against the wealth um, and the security of the unskilled labor class throughout the rest of the world. And it, I would call it a class, uh, a class warfare, which I would attribute to the decline and decline and decline of inflation from mm -hmm. 1980. Um, and so you have this class warfare, and you've got a group of central banks that don't understand money. And, and the two forces coming together, I, I find it catastrophic in what it could mean. But that has to change with the reverse of globalization. Um, it has to change with the reverse of globalization. Um, or it will change with the reverse of globalization. Um, how much globalization you can unwind is, is an easy thing to say. In practical terms, an unwinding of globalization is harder to conceive of. It's not impossible, uh, and it, but it's certainly not like we wake up in 2023 and we've unwound it. It's a bit like the energy crisis. It's a bit like the ridiculous nature of the forward winter uh, curves for natural gas in Europe where they're elevated for this yep. winter but then there's a they're going you know natural gas winter prices between eight and ten times greater than the prevailing of the last 10 15 years yeah, so, which absolutely. is to say they're extraordinarily high okay but the no and so the notion is well, well we'll mean revert back to something that we'd call average which would be considerably less I mean, the, cur the forward curve is sort of in the front end is at seven, and and the long end's at two. Yeah, and, and the long so that depending on how long you're talking about, but you need ten, fifteen years to address the profound fall folly of European energy policy um, for the last three decades. Um, so you know, three, four years out, I would say. Prices have to remain elevated. The big issue, really, for global markets is how you know, remember um, European house. If we we jump between crude oil and natural gas, we can jump between price per barrel of oil, thermal energy units. You know, so let's stick to oil, barrel of oil. Europe is paying six hundred dollars per barrel of oil on a per barrel of oil basis for natural to, for na the natural gas to, to, for the yeah. energy for housing and, and everything else. Um, when the prevailing, you can supposedly buy a physical barrel of oil today for about 90 pounds. Um, and that's the prevailing price. And natural gas, which is your well supplied in the US, would, would kind of would be cheaper again. I think natural gas, if you put it North American natural gas 
on a borrow of oil basis would be about uh, 60 or 75 bucks. There's yeah. a ratio of yeah. like, it's either six or eight yeah. times. And that, six or eight times, because natu- yeah, natural gas is trading like nine bucks or something. Yeah, yeah forgive me. They it's about 10. 10. Yeah, yeah 10, 10, exactly. 10, 10, 10. So, yeah, so, yeah. so let's call it 75 bucks. Um, how long does it just remain? It's not just a European thing because Europe infects Asia because the rest of the world is just poorly supplied with nat, nat gas. Um, North America has a plentiful amount, but then has this ESG thing, which we might discuss, yeah. where it has it all, but you, natural gas is hard to dis- distribute around the, the place. Pipelines, you can't get consent for pipelines. And then the tragedy is, we, we keep hearing about, uh, remember, LNG is a, is Frankenstein. Uh, natural gas has, I think, half the carbon content of a barrel of oil. Yep. Um, I should know, and I do know, I can't recall, the, the, the kilograms of carbon emitted by a barrel of oil. Anyway, the, um, so natural gas, we've had... We had evolved. We'd taken thermal coal out. We'd stopped burning oil. We were doing natural well, unless, gas. Unless you're Germany and you decide that thermal coal is the way to go again. Yeah, you elect the Green Party and and it's back to burning coal. <laughs> yeah. And and that's, uh, thank you for that. Because, again, my life was always... you. Know, when I set out as a hedge fund manager, I recognised that my competition were amongst the, the smartest people on the planet because the return on inter- intellectual capital... This is before Facebook and Amazon yeah. where winner takes all platforms and you are a trillionaire, you know. Um, hedge funds with the two and 20 model, you know, now you'd meet a few hedge funds like me and you go, these guys are bozos, you know. But as a kind of, as a principle, high return on intellectual capital would attract a lot of intellectual capital. And so my, I thought it is preposterous to try and be smarter than some of the smartest people on the planet. And so I reconfigured it to say, well, why is it that just by being super smart, you're not guaranteed to make money? Mm. And it's that notion that life is capricious, that really weird, strange, stupid things happen, that you're not constantly, but you you invoke this saying, who would have guessed that? that this is loony. Who, like you say, Germany, very green credentials, and, and now they're burning a huge amount of coal. That was my, I'd be raising my hand and saying, well, kind of, that was, I, I thought that, you know, you know, I, I thought that. You know, when Citigroup thought gold was going to be 3,000 bucks, I was like, well, actually, I think the Fed's going to be at zero interest rates and you should be long 10-year treasuries. That was, that was my role. And so I would think that the, there would, there would be a continued and long elevation of natural gas prices in Europe. Um, and there's lots of things that come from it. So clearly, as we're seeing the UK, um, that it's a bit like COVID lockdown, that the government purse is intervening yeah. and, and taking that strain. I think there's no choice for that. But so you're going to ask me about inflation. Uh, we have an ele- we have a profound elevation in the prices of a particular group of products and services. But how can you how can you? Um, subsidize people's wallets, the government, through energy caps, etc., or in the U.S. stymies, and then expect inflation to, to, to stop. Well, well, indeed. So let's backtrack that a little bit. Um, it, there's typically um, a break on inflation in that energy is... you have. You have no discretion. You have to heat your yep. house. You have yeah. to drive your car. 
Um, but you have discretion in terms of do you eat out or or do you buy some veg from the market? You know, do you do you buy another subscription to Netflix? You know, the Peloton bikes and all of this. There's a lot of discretionary spending uh, where you can cut it back. You know, U.S. cinema takings this year are. 59% of the level they were in 2019. Yeah, I mean, look at Cineworld, obviously, announced yesterday. I mean, yeah. Um, and, you know, and Cineworld is, is one name. Um, there's a, a very well um, cash-endowed competitor which will survive, you know. But if you look at the stock, bar, stock market and you look at um, areas where they're prone to discretionary spend, stocks are saying, I ain't confident. I ain't confident. So that would reflect the natural way of how you, you circuit break the inflation. You know? And again, another point would be, so if the price of your average basket of goods and services has been elevated by 9%, unless there's a 9% additional increase in the money supply, mm-hmm. and money supply is a weird, like, I said money supply, but I, I wish to take it away. M- money, like anyone that talks about M2, money supply, I mean, they are just, think of them as, mm, the, the, mm, the pause, reflect. Um, yeah, it's, I, I, you know, I, I have a disdain for experts and, and monetary experts. I have a profound disdain for. Um, but, you know, there, there has to, in common sense terms, there has to be kind of 9% more moneyness Moneyness is a better term. Yeah. Moneyness in the economy, okay? And, and if there's not, then you can't sustain a 9% elevation in prices. And typically, again, you see a cutback in discretionary spending. So back to your point, um, I guess the government, when the government subsidizes and, and takes that pain, then actually you don't have to cut back on the discretionary spend. And so that's where there is a, a legitimate fear that it could be inflationary. So I guess, therefore, but the... the the non-discretionary, sorry, the discretionary becomes almost self-regulating, doesn't it? You almost take inflation out of the system yeah. because you yourself choose not to. Yeah, economic agents take it out. Um, and, and, and so, but it's for sure it's a red f- flag inflation um, concern concerned simply in terms of the manifestation of inflation, that the government is subsidizing a, a, a very large component of spending within the economy. Um, but then we all expected QE to have a massive inflationary move, and obviously it didn't. Well, indeed. But what I was going to say is that, but on the other hand, the the verbiage and the, the rhetoric of central banks is absolutely terrifying ordinary people like you've just quoted so, Paul. exactly right that's that's the thing it's almost a self-fulfilling cost of in crisis and maybe the media has been part of this as well to tell people they shouldn't be out spending any money yeah, they mean, don't know what's coming i mean the, 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 again the, the, you my life is always being detached um you have to kind of some form of meditation when you you newspapers, even Financial Times. I mean, they're all, they have a propaganda, they have a prejudice, and you've just got, you've got to see it, and you've got to let it flow. It's extraordinary, the, the nonsense that they write about. But, let's, you know, listen, with the internet, we, we de- defunded 
media. Mm. Yeah, they were mm. well-capitalized, profitable businesses going back 34 years, 30 to 40 years ago that employed really smart and intelligent people. They've got hundreds of years. Yeah. yeah. So. But they're no longer, they're, they're now, they've, they're now on Substack, yeah. you know, they've yeah. got podcasts, you know. <laughs> and so the debate and the dialogue's not there. And it's the same thing again with the ESG, you know, stop, you know, stop now all hydrocarbon extraction. How's that working out? I mean, if only battery storage is a little bit better, right? You know, and then the notion that, you know, the Extinction Rebellion, which is truly the one that drives me bonkers. And the fact that it's actually sponsored and financed by a hedge fund manager that flies around the world in a private jet is, again, preposterous. And and when you think of the antipathy of the of some of the press with their prejudice, and they don't even write about it. That's a secret. We'll give them a pass on that because he's funding a noble cause. Well, really? You know, so anyway. But if we go back to inflation, yeah. Um, yeah. Freight costs seem to be rolling on supply side. Commodities prices rolling. China is still struggling. I mean, we, maybe we do have this sort of cost of living crisis, self-regulating consumer behaviour. Are we at peak inflation? Does it does it begin to roll over despite what the government's doing with additional subsidies? Um, I believe so. Who? Ca- I'm just some bozo that kind of surfs in a Caribbean island. I mean, I don't, like we've spoken for an hour or something. I mean, you would think, I don't, I, I have no Bloomberg terminal. I kind of meditate with the Financial Times, kind of let it roll over me, kind of, and I, and I think, and I, I speak to smart people like yourself. Um, the bond market, the U.S. Treasury bond market, which is where the real intelligence, not just the U.S., but, you know, like um, major G7 uh, bond markets, uh, is where you find intelligence, and that's their assessment. And that assessment can be found in 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 the shape of the forward curve. You know, the market's been saying, okay, like we have to push the short tunnels up because you've convinced us that you're you're sticking to this. Uh, you're always bonkers at these moments. You never you never listen to us. Um, all we're saying is we wouldn't do <laughs> what yeah. you're doing. Okay. But it's your gig, okay? So the market, the the, the biggest, and, and why that matters is, I would remember the Federal Reserve. I think has got eight, is it eight board members plus all the the staffers, and they meet every two months or six weeks. The notion that somehow they get it better than anywhere anyone else. The notion that they're a better indication than the the. Tens of thousands of professional people, profession, I mean, who cares if they're professional or unprofessional? What I mean is people who live, live by breathe, the sword, breathe, die yeah. by the sword, that they are commercially, they have no choice but to make judgment with regard to where we're going to be rates and other variables will be in one month, three months, 18 months time. And getting those decisions wrong consistently, they will lose their job. Whereas the tenured nature of professors and central banking means that the cost of being wrong was well, not obvious what the cost of being wrong yeah. is no. and so therefore a logical argument is that you think that i'd imagine i assume that as the bond market would tell us there will be a pivot at some point well that's when it gets fascinating because the mark the market's gonna chap on the feds knock on the feds door 
is going to take, I think, is, is again, I think theatrically, I think the, the, the stock markets, risk actors will take uh, the S&P down um, perhaps 40, between 30-40% from its peak. So we're down at, what, 16 yeah. from the, the high, roughly. So let's say we, 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 we double that drawdown. And the market will be uh, searching, saying, well, okay, we're calling you. D- do you do your pivot? Now, I, I think the headline optical inflation will, will still be high. Yeah. Could be 6 could be 7%. What does the Fed do? And we don't know. I mean, I, I think the Fed, um, you know, if it's, if it's not 32, if it's 42, the Fed will be doing something. Um, Just, despite, despite Powell saying uh, inflation is going back to 2 3%. Um, I don't give credence and I don't give much. I, I don't really care for the, the, the chairman. You know, he's the chairman of what? He's the chairman of the, you know, of, the, of I call them the, the French for a rat. No, the French for a bat, forgive me is a bald rat, a chauve souris. And it feels a very appropriate term. I'm not saying they're bald, but they're certainly blind. Maybe they're bald and blind. Um, and they scurry around like... The, 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 the Jay's problem, the, the Federal Reserve Chairman's problem, is that in the depths of COVID in 2020, when there was just so much palpable fear of the unknown, um, him and other board members were on American prime tv daytime television which is unusual didn't have a tie on you know Mm. there was this propaganda it's all these guys qe is nothing but rhetoric it's not money printing it's rhetoric it's been seen to be doing something and and Powell was on tv he's like we're printing money we got your back you know you the american household don't worry we got your and they're like you're printing money let me clarify. We are printing money. I mean, liar, liar, pants on fire. You know, they, there's they would be they they would be charged with breaking federal law were that to be the case. They can't, they're not obliged. They're not um, the Federal Reserve Act of 1934 uh, specifically denies them that opportunity. Um, and yet, two years later, of course, there's this optical, um, very rampant elevation in prices. Well, you know, this is the guy who said he was printing money two years ago. So he owns it. And the politician's like, Jay, damn, what have you done? Right? And so this is an ass-saving where you sacrifice everyone else to, and you start talking about being Paul Volcker. Paul Volcker raised interest rates in a recession. Okay, check, you're doing yeah. the same. Debt to GDP. This, the 70s, is anyone that can subtract 30 from 70 will tell you it was 40 years ago and over those 40 years the american and the global economy had deleveraged and debt to gdp was like one one and a half times okay you could raise rates didn't didn't really yeah. matter no one like yeah. my my parents got a mortgage in 1980 um and that was a profound shock they had never conceived of the notion that they would own a house, that they would be yeah. given a mortgage. You know, and that's thanks to, you know, obviously the, the Thatcher thing and it was a social kind of experiment, give people ownership and maybe you'll see a positive change within communities. Okay, I mean, it, it set my parents and it's, and it set their 
10-year-old kid into a life of just profound anxiety. But, you know, an anxi- why not? So an anxious kid, what's the best job for an anxious kid? A hedge fund manager. A hedge fund manager. Yeah. Take risk and then yeah. worry about it all the time. Yeah, I'm, I'm a really good warrior, you know, so that all kind of, that all checks. But yeah, so Volcker was raising interest rates at a time when my parents, who would be representative of a wide pool of, of society, certainly didn't have debt and certainly had no conception that they would ever have debt. So the idea you want to replicate that now when everyone has a mortgage, again, I would say good luck with that. Okay, so so uh, I guess I guess something has to break, or maybe you're right, the... Yeah, the the market will knock on the window and and ask for that pivot and that pivot will have to come. Uh, things are things are in in the metrics that I look at. We're, we're we're now. I said it's hurricane season in the Caribbean. It's hurricane season in financial markets. Okay, so the one oddity is um, the interventions of the Federal Reserve and, and other central banks seems to be creating what I call a volatility machine in that we are experiencing events which are outside the box. So there would be, you know, I said to you, you know, I, I pumped myself up, I said I made 50% in October 2008, I said it was the worst year in 100 years. Um, 100 years, like there are events that you would, in the normal course of life, anticipate that they would be rare, such that it would be the spacing, the padding of a very long time before the next event. And yet we had, Nasdaq crash in two in two thousand, which was enormous. You know, it was greater than one times GDP. When you destroy G uh, wealth, the equivalent of one year of flow of income, there are like really deep uh, repercussions. And then we had you know two thousand and eight, which was mm-hmm. profoundly even greater. Um, we've had COVID, and then we've had bits in between. You know, so. The machine is just is firing out these profound um, um, reversals, which threaten again to make the system go binary, where we're at one, but we might reset to zero. And and I, I believe we're in that hurricane season, whereby we're about to experience another one of those events that you would you would kind of term that's a one in a hundred year experience. It's just like. But I think that would be the third or the fourth in yep. 15 years. That's yep. the volatility machine. Yeah. Now, I'm very aware that uh, we've sort of taken up quite a lot of your time this morning, Hugh. Um, but just sort of one final question on markets before we move on to, to some of my normal questions that my regular listeners will know. But um, you know, so what happens into year end and, and first quarter next year if you had your crystal ball? I mean, this, it, it, are risk assets... You know, are, you, are you avoiding risk assets? Are you short? How how would you position yourself? So I um, again, for clarity purposes, um, I live on a small volcanic island. Um, I do yoga. Um, I I play pickleball or paddle tennis. Um, I surf. Um, I do not trade uh, stocks. Um, I do invest in very high end. Um, uh, uh, real estate. Um, I, I construct and then I owner manage um, short term uh, very luxurious uh, rentals on the island of St. Bart's. Um, Blanc Bleu would be the, the, the one to look out for in St. Bart's. Um, so I don't care. I, I care, I don't care. Yeah. Like So you asked me about Bitcoin. For me, real estate in St. Bart's is even better. It's kind of similar in that 
And then again, when I said Bitcoin had the, the advantage of portability, of course, it had the advantage of there, there, there's only going to be 21 million coins, and, and you know, so it has that security. Um, and and then they're going to rev- they're going to make be making less as uh, there's going to be a halving, I think, in two years' time in terms of the production. And same box is like we get these halving events, which is tighter and tighter uh, regulation on what you can build. So what I was building in twenty. 14 is impossible to build today. So it's like a Bitcoin asset. So how many pickleball courts are there on the island? Um, well, they're growing. Yeah. Um, one, two, three. Th- three. I, three that I know of. Um, I in, I love the... Well, pickleball for me is, is anarchy. And like People come and say, what are the rules? I'm like, that's just not the question. Yeah. <laughs> the question is that we... It, Ten have is the the greatest horror of my life is mixed doubles tennis. Um, yeah. I talk about this is everything's wrong with the modern society, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it it, it it's just it's just very aged and oh heavens, it's, it's my thing, it's my problem. I've, I've got ghosts. I um, I I think I was um, given the task of being um, mature and, and almost being a carer. Um, as a child, um, and, and forced to be older than than my years, and, and so I've got a pretty weird mental setup. Where, I mean, look at me, you know. I mean, I'm living. I'm Benjamin Button. I'm I'm determined to live my life in re- reverse. In that, I'm determined to go back and get the childhood that perhaps I feel like I, I missed. So pickleball for me is drinking tequila, playing French rap. And, and hitting that ball as fast as you can, as sounds hard like, as you can. Forget. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, now, as my regular listeners will know, I tend to close with three questions. So, Hugh, if you don't mind, your greatest inspiration or mentor? Mm, inspiration mentor, heavens. Um, do you know, I, let me answer that in terms of the last person that kind of charged through my mind, and I went, wow. And I kind of partly went, wow, because I... I had not heard of the. So who is the person? Uh, Ronnie Lang, uh, Ro- Ronaldo Lang, Ronald Lang, L A I N G, and and Ronnie is from Glasgow. He he's sadly he's dead. He died on a tennis court in Saint Tropez. Mm-hmm. Not a bad place to go, but yeah, indeed. Um, there are many. I fear I'm destined to die on a pickleball court in St. Barnes. And, and a why pickleball not? court whilst pickled, maybe? Oh, absolutely. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. Um, and, and Ronnie, um, again, like, you know, who am I? Why is the sky blue? All these kind of dumb questions, right? Um, and when you see yourself in others, so this is a very narcissistic, you say like, who's my mentor, the greatest inspiration, right? And then I, I'm talking about someone where it's like, wow, actually, mm, comes from where I come from. Um, the acid capitalist my, my, is, is, is in deference to that. So that reflects the, uh, like the, the significance, if you will. And he was the Marxist capitalist. So I, I'm the mm. acid capitalist. Uh, so he was the Acid Marxist, I'm the cap- acid capitalist, um, and he was the at the the high end of the com- uh, the countercultural movement with Jim Morrison and the like yep. in the late sixties. And if you go on YouTube and you see some of his presentations, and th- and the point being was, 
the closest advisors and the people sponsoring it, they're like, I mean, is he loaded? What is it? What is he taking? You know, it was like, is he for real or is he medicated? And you never knew. I mean, he was for real. He just had a, he was charged with a, a an astonishingly uh, different personality, which allowed him to see things. You know, I, I always say to me, I can see dead bodies. I can hear voices in my head, you know. Uh, and so Ronnie comes comes to me like that. Um, th- that sounds narcissistic. I mean, clearly Chris Minotti had a, had a huge yeah, course, bearing. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly the combination of the experience at Bailey Gifford for eight years and then the finishing school with Chris Minotti was, was astonishing. And there have been some amazing um, um, uh, investors that, that really um, gave me wisdom, they, who were clients and gave me wisdom. And then a book which has inspired you? Oh, um, Okay, so I'm going to be boring and just give the the stock my stock response, which is which is another Scotsman, um, John Buchan, B U C H A N, I believe, um, author of the Thirty Nine yeah. Steps, yeah, yeah. Um, but he wrote a little novella called The Gap in the Curtain, and it's beautiful, and it's relevant to this conversation. Because to my mind, it captures the essence of speculation, and it captures the essence of um, our of why smart people are not guaranteed to make money. Um, there is a uh, you know like eighty years ago, hundred years ago, hundred years ago, there's a, uh, a high society. Um, there's a um, a dinner party in the country. And there's a mad German professor. They're always mad. And they're always German. And he believes he can train the mind to see the future. And so they take this thought experiment to, to be able three guinea pigs to be able to uh, project and to see the front page of the London Times one year hence. And the, the tale is armed with the surety of what will happen. How do you navigate the journey? To the inevitable conclusion, and that is, and that's again. Let's let's go out on the Bible. Mm-hmm. Is it Saint Peter, Saint Paul? He's like Jesus. Like, come here. You know, um, who am I? You're God. You're the Almighty. You're the Divinity. I am in the shadow of greatness. And he's like, come closer. Pitch. He slaps him. What? 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 It's like, shut up. What? what? Bef- you know, like you know, before the night is over, you will have rejected me. You will have denied who I am. Impossible, and we all know that that cock crowed. Yeah, that is investing. And then, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting out on their career if they wanted to follow in a pirate's footsteps? Heavens! Uh, so first and foremost, you have to glimmer and you have to glow, right? You know, um, you have to. You're going to need people to believe in you. And that's going to be pretty damn hard if you don't believe in yourself. Um, and then you've got to, therefore, strike a balance between not being a twat. Yeah. Because yeah, you've got to earn your self-love. Um, and you earn it, again, softly. Um, so for me, I, I've, I employed over the course of 15 years and beyond um, way too many people. Um, and... You know, you come and see me, like, oh, okay, entertain me. Well, I mean, you know, give me a give me a reason, you know, because don't tell me you're smart. 
the price of admission for most things is being smart. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. It, it's give me that, give me eccentricity. You know, make my if we're going to spend a life together, how, make it fulfilling and interesting, and sometimes fun. Yeah, yeah. So you have to give thought. So, and and you know the thing that sells. I don't know they say sex sells. Uh, passionate sex sells. Being passionate about the subject matter. It comes from within. Yeah, I talked about serendipity. Um, I got hired by Bailey Giffords back in back in the day. Yes, there was the the gene diversity and stuff. I was a mountain. I, I some make sure you vibrate. You have to vibrate with a a passion for something in life. And even in this industry, it's amazing how many people I feel don't have a passion for coming into work every morning. I mean, why wouldn't you want to come and? But for me, I, I think I have one of the most exciting jobs in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, which is never sated. Yeah, exactly. It keeps, you know. I mean, it's 24-7, seven yeah. days a week. You'll yeah. be on your deathbed going, but what happens <laughs> next? It's too late, it doesn't matter. But no, tell me, no, go, go. Exactly, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, I can't express how much I enjoy your podcast, The Acid Catalyst. And listeners should really go and have a listen. It, I mean, it really is thoroughly entertaining but how can how can listeners today get in touch with you what's the best way to, to follow have, you um so i'm trying to be ubiquitous um i've discovered this thing called twitter it's amazing wow. <laughs> uh, when everyone was kind of going into um social uh, what do we call it seclusion or whatever 2020 i was kind of coming out of my 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 man cave i'd closed the hedge fund in 2017 and I was beginning to rehabilitate, and I was ready again to find my voice. Uh, I discovered Twitter, and t- Twitter is this, this phenomenal intellectual utility. It's free. It's astonishing. Um, so you can find me there, uh, Hendry underscore Hugh at Hendry underscore Hugh. Um, I've not been. I, normally, I I, I I try and do a kind of Gonzo, a Hunter S. Thompson. I drink tequila. I playing. Pickleball, but also kind of late at night in the tropics. I'm on this tiny, tiny island, 10,000 people um, in some weird time zone. And I get flashes of intervention. I feel the need to write normally at bizarre times. And, and it's it's a puzzle. I want you to read it and then think, damn, there's something there. I've got to read it again. I've got to read it again. I've got to read it again. Sounds very Hemingway, actually. Well, yeah. Um, We'll see. Um, so, spe- so, yeah. so speaking of writing, you actually have written a book. When is that published? I don't know. The it, you know, you you pass it to publishers, um, and like yeah, no, we only publish finance books. I'm like, well, you know, we have. I had the biggest short position in the Icelandic Icelandic Krona. I took on the Bank of England. You know, I made fifty percent in two thousand and eight. It's all in the book. But I I write the book. I wanted to write a book which could go lateral. Like, it's not easy to fill the financial Twitter hemisphere, blog sphere, but it's certainly conceivable. You know, I've got 60,000 followers, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I wanted s- some kids that come from my kind of background, somehow in a library or wherever, they would, like, open this thing and go, wow, that's a right. No one... T- I thought these guys, they are all bozos, but yeah. actually... S- you know, some kind of good, some tracks get laid, like you say. You like, you wake up, and you're like, boom, let's do it, and they don't get that message. So I think I'm going to probably self-publish um, and maybe via Substack. So it's uh, look out for me. Um, the podcast is on uh, the 
I mean, it's out there. The, the, you know, the S&P of podcast platforms is Apple. Yep. Um, and we do, uh, the visual representation is on YouTube. Um, and, and I'm a big one for images. You know, we talked about charts. Graphics and colors and shapes is is the nature of being inside my head. So I know Instagram is, is horrible in, in all the things that it means and Facebook and all that stuff. But I love that in, engagement. Um, and I waste a lot of time kind of posing with my hat, going, ooh, I'm in LA, ooh, I'm in London. Well, speaking of hats, I couldn't resist buying one, so I do actually have a red one on order. So Thank you very much, thank you. And, and people, you got the hats, you can have a hat, Asset Capitalist, you can have it, God forbid, with my name on it, which is just... Yeah, how many of those have you sold, apart from, you know, to you? Uh, with the name, or like... Your one, name, your name on. I, I, astonishingly, it's something like uh, 18%. Really? Um the bestseller is I recommend you panic, yeah. and 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 for anyone not knowing, I said that to, I said that on news Newsnight, with with Paxman, he's like, okay, what would you recommend, whatever? And I was like, I recommend you panic, and that's the most subversive thing you can say because. Television and newspapers, the interview experts. Experts have got skin in the game of the status quo. They're doing well. They're doing so well, they get invited on TV, which is great for their vanity. Why would you change it? So they, they're, they're desperate to say, it's fine, it's fine. And they're typically tenured professors. It's fine, you know. It's not fine. Panic. Burn the damn house down. And, um, and invoke change. Exactly. Hugh, this has been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And indeed, if you'd like to get hold of me, uh, please use live at zeus.co.uk.